This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, Mir Abdullah Miri joins me to talk about his escape from Afghanistan last year and takes me inside the production of The Desert of Death, an episode he made for the Intercepted podcast. I was in Herat. I received a lot of phone calls that I have to go to the airport. I went to the airport. We tried to enter the airport, but it was chaos outside. No one could enter. It was very difficult. We tried entering the airport for several days. We could not succeed. Then there was an explosion. A suicide attack happened. Then the foreigners left. We were left behind. So our contacts in British Council and the UK government, they were telling us, we reached a moment that they told us, we no longer can help you in Afghanistan. All you need to do, you have to go to a third country on your own. And once you reach a third country, we can help you get relocated to the UK. Mir Abdullah Miri is an Afghanistan observatory scholar at New America. In Afghanistan, he served on the faculty of Herat University. In the fall of 2021, Miri was evacuated from Kabul to England and now lives in Bath. Mir Abdullah Miri, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much for having me, Well, It's so wonderful to have you on, Miri. We, we're friends, we've worked together, we've seen each other in person. It's kind of unusual to invite a friend onto the podcast. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I want to start with a rather strange beginning, perhaps, and it has to do with saffron and hard drives. And I'm just curious, Miri, did you ever get the saffron and the hard drive that you left at the Kabul airport? Has it ever been returned to you? Uh, no, I have not. But surprisingly, two days ago, with the help of uh, several friends inside, an Af- inside Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan, we could locate the bags and receive them. So they are with a friend in Kabul, but I need to see if I can receive them one day. So you now, you know where the bags are? Yes, now we know because we could locate them. And tell me, what is inside those bags other than saffron and this hard drive? So when I wanted to leave Afghanistan, we were told that uh, we will leave with a charter flight, a very small airplane, 34 people on that airplane. And we were told to have a small carry-ons. We had two carry-ons, each one 12 kg. We only had one set of clothes per person. And uh, because my child was two years old at the time, so we had some diapers for him and some medications for him. And uh, uh, mostly clothes. So the hard drive was the important one because I had, uh, as a researcher, I would do a lot of research. I had all my files there. I was doing my PhD studies. I had my information in that hard drive. In addition to my research data, I had all my personal memories, information, pictures, photos from different countries, photos from my wedding, all personal data, and everything from my phone, from my laptop in Kabul because I did not have access to high-speed internet. I was scared that if I go to the airport, I might be stopped and they might check my phone or my laptop. I had to copy and put them all on that hard drive and delete them from my laptop and phone. So there were clothes. I was telling my wife yesterday that uh, the clothes, especially for my son, they're too small now for him. We only need the hard drive and the saffron. And that saffron was important to us, not only because it was expensive, but also because it's related to our city, 
our culture. Herat is known for its saffron in addition to a lot of other things. So we wanted to have the saffron not only for ourselves but also to receive people here in the UK and serve them saffron, saffron tea to show that this is something which remembers Herat. This is something that we have in Afghanistan and this is part of our culture. So I really wanted to have them and I'm positive that one day we will get them. So if there's anyone that is listening to this show that travels in and out of Kabul, maybe some international development experts, please get in touch with us so we can somehow give you Miri's luggage that contains not even the, all the luggage, just the saffron and the hard drive. That would be a big help. So, I mean, Miri, you know, this hard drive, it's quite tragic that you don't have it. I mean, all those photos and the memories. But on a practical level, when it comes to the PhD, you were in the middle of doing your PhD and you had chapters written for your dissertation on that hard drive. I mean, this is like the worst case scenario for any doctoral student is to lose all the writing and all the data that they've done. So what's the status of your PhD? Are you able to continue working towards a PhD? Yes, I explained the situation to my advisor. Actually, I had shared some drafts with him, but I had the revised version of the first three chapters on that hard drive. At this stage, I'm doing the data collection. I'm working on the uh, quality data collection for my PhD, but uh, I don't have the revised version of those three chapters. But the good thing is I was not a stop because of those three chapters, because the data collection was something different. I could continue, but of course, in order to finish my PhD, I need those three chapters. I had to spend months on them and I can't imagine I have to start writing them again because it will be difficult. Gosh, it's really the worst case scenario for any PhD student. So, I mean, you know, take me back in time, if you could, to the lead up before you got to the Kabul airport and had to leave your luggage there. How did that transpire? How did you, in a sense, get out of Afghanistan? If I go back to my childhood, as a child, I was born in an immigrant family. I was in Iran. I completed my elementary and secondary school in Iran. Then there was a time we had to leave Iran because education was not free for us anymore. So, and we had the interim new government in Afghanistan. So right after 9-11, 2000, 21. We moved to Herat, Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan, I continued my education. I went to school. I had a part-time job. Even in Iran, I had to work half a day and the other half go to school. I've been working and studying, I consider, since I was nine years old. Different words. In Iran, I would go to school half a day and the other half. I had a cart of being a fruit vendor on the street. So in Afghanistan, I would work in a cell phone store. Then day by day, I got promoted. But um, there was a time when I started my university studying English language and literature as my undergrad. Because my English wasn't good that much, I had learned that if I teach English to beginners, then I will improve. Then I started teaching voluntarily at the Red Crescent Society. I was teaching orphan kids. Then that was the aha moment that this is something I really enjoy. That was the sheer joy when I saw that those orphan kids were progressing, were improving. Then I decided 
decided to become a teacher. Then toward the end of my undergrads, I applied to a student fellowship. I went to India for a month. At uh, the end of 2010-2011, I completed that program teaching methodology in India. Uh, once I came back to Afghanistan, there was a teaching position at the English department, Herald University. I applied. I got accepted. Then I worked hard since 2011 till the end of 2021 that I resigned from Herald University. For more than a decade, 11 years, I was a faculty member at Herald University. In addition to teaching at Herald University, I would work as an educational consultant, helping students to pursue their graduate studies. I can say that I had hundreds of students who studied awful IELTS with me, who applied to different scholarships, went to different countries. I was also working as a researcher with different national and international organizations. I was working with, for example, with the World Bank, with Creative International Association. Also, I was working with British Council as a trainer through which I would train teachers and principals, head teachers all over Afghanistan. So because of my association with the British Council, when the situation was chaotic in the country and when the government collapsed August 2021, I received an email from the UK government that I'm eligible to get relocated to the UK. I was in Herat, I received a lot of phone calls that I have to go to the airport. I went to the airport, we tried to enter the airport, but it was chaos outside. No one could enter, it was very difficult. We tried entering the airport for several days, we could not succeed. Then there was an explosion, a suicide attack happened. Then the foreigners left, we were left behind. So our contacts in British Council and the UK government, they were telling us, we reached a moment that they told us, we know no longer can help you in Afghanistan. All you need to do, you have to go to a third country on your own. And once you reach a third country, we can help you get relocated to the UK. Are busy working at Herat University, busy working for all these different international organizations over the years. And when the government collapses in the summer of 2021, the British Council tells you, we can get you out. But then ultimately, they never do. They do you... couldn't because the suicide attack happened and they left the country and they no longer had their people in Afghanistan, but they were telling us we have them in third countries. For example, go to Pakistan. So, okay. And they're telling you this by email? Yes, they were telling us by email, but there was a moment that there was an email breach as well. So they did a mistake and instead of uh, putting our email address in BCC to do a blind carbon copy, they put all the email addresses in CC. And uh, after receiving the first email, then I received multiple emails emails having the same text. I'm not sure if it was, yes, I will do something like that. I realized that uh, most of those who were replying the emails because uh, they were replying all, I think they were those interpreters who worked with in military. And we heard from friends that most of those interpreters don't have the right computer and technology skills. That's why they shared their emails and passport with others. Then you might be in trouble because now your identity and your intentions are disclosed. So we had a lot of tensions in Afghanistan. We wanted to get out, but that also added more tensions to our situation. Okay, so you're trying to get out. 
all of a sudden your names get leaked because of a very simple email mistake and you get sort of lumped in with people who might be targeted and so you and your family might be targeted themselves where are you staying at this point in Kabul this is happening over days weeks it's not just happening within hours true so i'm originally from herat which is a western part of the country so we had to go to Kabul which is the capital and located in the eastern part of the country so we were in Kabul we had no relatives in Kabul i had uh, friends but i could not trust them no one could trust others they could not trust me because we would all say that so and so had relationship with foreigners for example i had studied in the us they would not trust me they would say that me might be a target so i would say that so and so might be a target i cannot go and stay with that person and we had to just hide ourselves not to share our intentions with others and not to, only my close families they knew where we were so we were staying in different hotels every now and then we were told to change our places and delete our emails and whatsapp messages we were communicating a little bit at this time and i remember we switched over to signal which is a sort of encrypted messaging system but then there was also a moment when you had a setting set on signal to delete all of the previous messages so like our chat history just didn't exist. Yes, I had to activate the timing messages that let's say after 24 hours the messages get deleted, but I would do that manually as well on my end I would delete the messages because it was a very scary situation. So when you're in these hotels moving around and you know this environment of sort of distrust, it's um on top of sort of a conflict and violent environment. What did you do day to day in the hotel? How did you get food what did your son do like what was life like in this hotel most of my time was spent on being glued to my phone sending text messages contacting different people and uh, in most cases a lot of uh, people contacted me to either translate texts for them so i could see that uh, they are applying to different programs sending emails to different agencies different organizations asking for help i can claim that I reviewed or wrote more than 100 threat statements for people so everyone would contact me because you know English just check this text we are sending to an organization so because we were in the hotel I had to buy food from outside from different um, let's say local restaurants and the problem was I couldn't uh, provide baby food soft food for my son he lost a lot of weight and that was a big concern for us on that time and uh, yes uh, in hotel I would text different people uh, until I could uh, learn about a plan that I saw on Twitter that um, a UCL professor is advocating researchers in Afghanistan. Then I remembered that uh, you and I we worked together on the country note for Afghanistan with the World Bank. Then I contacted you. I said, "Hey, well, I'm stuck in Kabul. Please help me if you can." Oh my gosh, that was really quite an amazing sort of moment you know i'm sure everything for you was 
a million times worse but it you know there was a lot of stress and emotional distress even on my end thinking here's someone i knew and worked with and there's only so much that we could do for each other i mean it was really quite amazing um never experienced anything like it but before we get into sort of how you ended up getting out you know the british council basically is telling you go to a third country like pakistan and we can then support you from there did you consider going to pakistan yes i tried a lot but um, as you listen to the episode i had with the intercepted the story of my cousin who got killed while trying to go to iran to illegally with the smugglers so that happened in early september and in mid-september we could find him i could get out of afghanistan in early november with your help so in between i tried go to pakistan i tried going to pakistan but um, in the black market i had to to purchase visas for Pakistan. I purchased visas for Pakistan for my wife, my son and I. And I also told one of my friends in Kabul that I found a travel agent who can do this for us. I also told him he also purchased Pakistan visa for himself on the black market. Then he could find a sponsor to help him purchase tickets, uh, flight tickets to go to Islamabad. So in a week, he went to Islamabad. But because I couldn't afford the flight tickets, they were very expensive. One way ticket for a 20 minute flight or 30 minute flight was at least $2,000 per person. But before the collapse, the round ticket was $350, including visa. So on that time I had to purchase the visa each visa I paid $350 and a normal visa was free but I had to pay I paid had the visas the sticker visa we went to Torham the Afghanistan Pakistan border in the eastern part we tried border crossing it took us two days at the border we, we were there for two days two nights so even because it was very crowded uh, people were pushing each other very chaotic in the crowd, I also, because it was very crowded, my ankle, my foot, my ankle got twisted. Um, so I was holding my son. There was a crowd. They were pushing. With that situation physically hurt, I went to the uh, Pakistan custom. It was around evening. Then they had different lines, queues for males and females. Because the queue, the line for females was shorter, uh, then my wife called me and said that they don't accept our visas. Then I went, uh, I talked to that person. He told us that we no longer accept the, the sticker visa. This one is a fake visa. We only accept the the e-visa so in the around midnight we reached kabul we came back to kabul i remember at that time you sent me some photos when you were at the border crossing and i think you said something to me like that was the scariest moment of your life yes and i was very sad why i did this why did i go to the border i should have waited maybe because at that moment we were emotionally hurt distressed physically hurt economically we had paid so our money was gone and that was a very difficult situation and the banks were closed we did not have access to monies that's why it was very difficult and uh, apart from that I, every time I could hear uh, stories about friends, relatives so my cousin died one of my students died in front of the airport because it was very it was rushed she was with her father and in the crowd she died so hearing those uh, stories very traumatic experience 
experiences. It was very difficult. It's just unbelievable, really. And it's just an awful experience that you had to go through. But okay, so here you are. You return to Kabul after a failed attempt. And what happens? Take me to November and how you ended up actually arriving at the Kabul airport and leaving your bags and your saffron and your hard drives and actually getting on an airplane. When I contacted you after seeing on Twitter that a UCL professor uh, is helping researchers in Afghanistan, then I remembered that we were together. I remember you are at UCL. I contacted you. Then you told me that there is a possibility that uh, you helped me to get evacuated because you know some uh, organizations are helping researchers. And um, so you help us we received that a humanitarian visa to go to Mexico. We were added to the list. And uh, then the team who supported us after you introduced us to them, they sent us a list as the humanitarian visa. And uh, they sent us the flight tickets. Uh, a couple of times the plan uh, got cancelled because everything would change unexpectedly in Afghanistan. Nothing was a fixed plan. Every time they would change because of the Taliban, they would change their policies. I remember the the organization basically had to charter a flight or buy a lot of seats on a flight that was leaving Kabul. And there weren't so many flights leaving Kabul at the time. So probably like you, I would get text messages basically saying the flight's going to leave tonight. And then 30 minutes before when the flight's supposed to leave, I'd get a text saying it's been canceled and we don't know when it's going to be rescheduled. And there, it was just sort of this high and low, high and low. And you just had no sense of if it's actually going to happen and it was it was really 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 stressful for me and I was living in London I mean I can't even imagine how stressful it must have been for you yes that's true and uh, finally when the day arrived we went to uh, the airport so in the morning I deleted everything uh, from my laptop after copying them to my hard drive I also deleted um, information data from my phone we went to the airport it was a normal airport like before the collapse but we had the, the tension there. So we got the boarding pass, uh, the boarding passes. We were waiting for the flight. The bags were checked in. Uh, when the boarding is started, then they announced that all the checked in bags are canceled. And they told us, you only have around 15 minutes to decide because on that time, the airport would be closed at uh, 6 p.m. in the evening they told us you need to decide quickly either you go without your bags luggages or wait we will send you another charter flight another day so we had to leave without our bags i was begging the staff at the airport all i need is my hard drive there was uh, an old man with us he had uh, i think heart problem he didn't know english i was translating on his behalf i was telling him telling the airport staff that he needs his medication. What they did, they brought his medication, but they didn't bring my hard drive. So initially, we were supposed to collect the bags the next day, but because they told us they will send them. So every time they procrastinated and it ended up after now 10 months, almost a year, I haven't received them yet. So you end up in Mexico. What was it like? to be in Mexico and what was the plan? What was the plan for the, the group of Afghans who ended up in Mexico going forward? 
So we were six or seven families. They all had different plans. I was the only one who wanted to go to the UK because I had an offer because I was eligible to go to the UK through ARAP, Afghanistan Relocation and Assistant Policy Scheme. Uh, the others, they were deciding, uh, they were trying to go to the US and Canada. So uh, they had different eligibility reference numbers there. In Mexico, once I re- uh, arrived there, the UK government had coordinated with uh, staff at the UK embassy. They were very responsive and supportive. They helped me to get the visa, but uh, after receiving the visa because of the COVID situation in the UK, that time I had to wait until they book my flight tickets. And then it was around Christmas. It was almost reaching the holidays, Christmas holidays. Um, but uh, finally, uh, December, I arrived in the UK. So you made it to the UK and you ended up becoming a Afghan New Observatory Fellow for New America. And you ended up creating a podcast, which I encourage everyone to go listen to it. It was just aired on The Intercepted. And it was a story, as you said, about your cousin. What was it like for you to basically get transplanted into a new country, having experienced some of the most traumatic events anyone could ever go through? And all of a sudden, you're basically turned into a reporter and you are reporting and making a podcast about a, you know, your cousin, your family experience, an experience that you went through in many ways. What was it like to put that podcast together? I'm thankful to New America and The Intercept for supporting me, providing that platform for me to explore the story of my cousin. For me, working on that story was a totally new experience. I was a researcher and I'm a researcher, but that program wanted me to do a journalistic activity, to report something, something I had never done before, especially podcast and creating an episode, writing a story in a new genre. So The experience was uh, very helpful. I learned a lot. I improved uh, at both personal and professional development levels. I learned a lot about uh, collaboration, reflections, feedback. I received a lot of support. They provided us uh, at the beginning of the program. They provided us a training, open source investigation training. And of course, I would receive a lot of feedback, especially um, on my English because I would write in academic English they were telling me don't write assist write help don't write however <laughs> use short sentences don't use a lot of complex sentences and uh, the work required a lot of emotional energy because I was dealing with a personal story but a traumatic one that was the sad part and uh, every time I had to contact relatives and asking them to think back, think about a traumatic experience they have experienced and provide information. Do you think it was therapeutic for yourself and or even your family members to sort of, you know, go through this process of remembering and recounting what happened? I don't know. It's difficult to say whether it was a therapy for them. I feel proud of what I did because I really hope that episode provides some a small comfort for them that they know that their story is being heard and that the prayers of others are for them. And uh, that's why I'm proud of the outcome and what I did. Now that I'm a refugee, I believe that 
there's a need to create more platforms and give voice to those refugees, migrants who are in other countries, who are forced to leave and who have lost everything. And one of the dialogues from the main character that lost his life in that episode is that he says, according to his wife before he left home, he said like, leaving home is like leaving soul. So whenever you leave your home, your homeland, you leave your soul. That's why we named that podcast as No Way Home. So when you leave you no longer find a place that you call home. I believe having such kind of platforms, giving voices to migrants, refugees, would help them not only to share their stories, but also help those who struggle to learn from the success stories of those who are successful. Not all experiences and not all stories are traumatic, of course. So that's why I enjoyed that work. And I believe uh, stories is powerful. And uh, yeah, I enjoy doing, as a researcher even, I enjoy doing qualitative research. It was unbelievably powerful. Your episode and, and the other ones I've listened to already, they are powerful. And I think you're right that these stories need to get out there and be heard. And, you know, I mean, it, it really is quite sad to think that there is no way home. The soul is where your home is. You lose your soul, you lose your home. But hopefully, like you said, there's some. there can be some positive or happy stories potentially i mean i'm so happy to hear that your hard drive has been found and i i really 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 hope that it will get reunited with you and i really also hope that the saffron makes it back what would you do what would you cook if you had the saffron returned to you what would be the first thing you make with it as i said before i will keep it to make saffron tea and when friends they come especially those who have never tried saffron from afghanistan from herat we serve them with saffron tea and say that this is what we have in afghanistan in herat we even call that red gold because we believe it's expensive so we use that name for that well mir abdulamiri thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I'm so happy that you are safe, thriving in your, your new environment. And I just wish you and your family, both in the UK and in Afghanistan, safety and prosperity. And I, I hope you make get reunited with that hard drive and that saffron. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much, Will, for having me. I really appreciate your support. Mir Abdulamiri is an Afghanistan Observatory scholar at New America. His episode of the Intercepted podcast is The Desert of Death, which is part of the series entitled No Way Home. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboten, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.